Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 20, Energetic Folk Herbalism, with Jim McDonald. In this episode, we speak with community herbalist and educator Jim McDonald about how he fell in love with plants, about herbal energetics, about using pool noodles to communicate complicated scientific concepts to students, the importance of using common plants, and how he and his students discovered new uses for New England Aster. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Jim McDonald, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Very, very well. Yeah, it's we're great. Bright and sunny. It's above freezing. So <laughs> that, that's always nice. I mean, it's it's wonderful to have four seasons, but like part of that is that when it's winter and you get those warm winter days, you're like, yes, this is like the best kind of winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, yeah, I, I like winter, especially to like make me more excited about spring. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I agree too. I think that um, I remember one time I was ordering, I think I was ordering like Kava Kava like a long, long, long time ago. And I was like, well, it's July. Do you normally wait until fall to harvest stuff around there? And there was this pause on the phone. And the person said, no, we don't need to do that here. And I was like, oh yeah, right. You don't have winter. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So you're calling in from Michigan, right? Calling in from Southeast Michigan, kind of like just outside of the Northwestern edge of the Detroit suburban sprawl. So there's Detroit, there's the inner suburbs and the outer suburbs. And like, there's the only thing that separates me from being in the sprawl is uh, two kind of largest state parks um, that's in some dirt roads. So it's pretty pretty nice out here, but still close enough to like a population of students, which makes it pretty helpful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you're an herbalist and educator. Um, mm-hmm. Have you always been a plant person? Did you grow up around plants? I grew up in the suburbs in like the eighties. So honestly, like I was like many eighties suburb kids, you know, like I, there was like, let's see, I grew up closer to Lake St. Clair, which is between Lake Erie. It's still a pretty big lake, but it's not a great lake. So it's between Lake Erie and Lake Huron. And um, that whole area would have been a wetland, but it was paved over and made into kind of like a gritty sort of like endless collection of subdivisions. Oh no. Um, And so when I lived out there, just being a kid in that time, you kind of like roam pretty freely. And there were like the woods and the fields, you know, here or there. So we spent a lot of time in those places, but I would not say that I was like a super, you know, like really super naturey kid. Um, you know, we used to go canoeing every year as a family. Um, my parents weren't really outdoor people. Probably when I was um, really started to immerse myself in it was like when I was a teenage kid and, you know, we would be like, well, what are we gonna do? We could go here, we could go there like, oh, let's go to the woods and screw around in the woods. And we started hitting up a bunch of the state parks. And especially when I started dating the woman who's now my wife, we pretty much, you know, like a lot of our courtship was like going to this park and going to that park. And mm. um, I, I 
got into plants a little bit later when I was into college, but, you know, we went from like hitting up all the state parks into like, you know, doing more vigorous hiking and backpacking and like uh, long uh, extended canoe trips. Uh, mm. So that was really sort of like just being out in nature and, you know, kind of being in awe and inspired by it uh, mm-hmm. led me to suddenly finding, you know, that plants were really awesome. Yeah. 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 I think that biophilia has to come, you know, before you can really get into like, you know, you have to have love for something before you, you know, the, well, I guess the interest can develop at the same time, but yeah, you know, a lot of people have their story of like, oh, I had this, you know, kind of condition happen and then plant medicine helped me out. And that's what got me in my herbal path. I didn't really have any of that. I was just mm-hmm. like, um, you know, honestly, I guess in my earlier teen years, I was mostly into like music and hard rock and heavy metal and progressive rock and stuff and playing music all the time. Cool. Um, and, you know, when I was in college, I was sort of like, you know, quote unquote, career wise going in that direction. I worked at like big rock radio stations in Detroit. And I remember I was into herbs at that same time. And I really distinctly have a memory of like, wow, most of the people I meet in like the radio music scene are kind of like very egoic and difficult to deal with and not necessarily mm-hmm. super sincere. And yeah. all of the people that I'm meeting who are into the outdoors and nature and herbs are like really cool. And I want to hang out with them. Oh, <laughs> interesting. It became a pretty big contrast, uh, yeah. you know, and I don't want to, you know, there are awesome musicians and awesome, some awesome people that work in radio stations. Mm-hmm. But I think because it's such a big business competitive environment, um, there was a lot of like a pretty intense kind of competition there. And I'm, I'm pretty yeah. competition averse, you know, uh-huh. for sure. Well, yeah, there's a lot of narcissistic kind of stuff going on. I mean, I'm a musician too, and I've okay, yeah, the whole thing, you know, egos just is part of it. I mean, even the fact that you have like the whole, I mean, it's like an institution that you have like battle of the bands, and I was always like, why does it have to be a battle? Why can't there just be a bunch of bands playing music? Because somebody has to win. I know. Does someone really need to win? But that's like (laughs) it is. It's really, it's really built into a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, so did you have like um, herb teachers or did you just go, go into this on your own? Um, you know, like, I guess, strictly speaking, I didn't really have herb teachers. I had herbalists who I ended up learning a lot from, but I didn't undergo like a formal course of study. Um, I want to think I would actually have to look on my website to find out when I first started getting into stuff. Cause I know I have it written down there, but I'm not super good with numbers. Um, I was in college. I was living, um, I went to Michigan state university. I was living on a kind of old overgrown farm, um, in a farmhouse in Okemos, which is just on the east side of East Lansing where Michigan state university is. And we had like 30 acres, um, which is more land nice. than I have now. And it was an overgrown farm. And so there was just stuff all over and a convergence of things happened, which is one of my roommates um, named Jason, who's really super cool um, artist and metalsmith, uh, left out a book on herbs um, on the counter and cause he's messy. And I started reading it. And a bunch of these plants grew in you know our yard because we had this mix of like, a field reclaiming into the woods and woods that were like more deciduous and woods that more coniferous and uh, a wetland area and then a whole bunch of just disturbed farmland. And um, wow. I would pass by the Beale Botanical Gardens at Michigan State University every day. And so I'd be like, oh, that's that plant that's growing by the barn. 
you know, and this little sign that says it's burdock or like, oh, you know, I walked past that plant and it bit me, a stinging nettle. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I knew some things, I knew raspberries, but I remember Stephen Buhner um, in one of his books, it might be like in Sacred Plant Medicine, he said something, which was kind of like my coming into a point is like, there were three types of plants. There were the little ones called plants and the medium-sized ones called shrubs and then the big ones called trees. <laughs> yeah. So my sense Real of vines. botany and plant identification was very much like that. Yeah. Um, but because I was reading this book and then, you know, passing by this botanical garden and checking it out and seeing, you know, things that'll labeled plants to, you know, that I could like recognize and spending so much time out in our property and land, I probably spent more time, you know, at our 30 acres doing stuff in the woods than I did going to classes. Um, <laughs> That's probably it, better for your education. And yeah, and what I did, I mean, really initially, and I think that this was um, in some ways quite formative is I kind of immediately went to like, you know, like, oh, there's willow trees, like a weeping willow was super easy to identify. I knew that from being a kid, like, you know, you can use the bark. And so I went and I cut a bunch of the bark off and I made tea with it, you know? And when I learned what burdock was, I got a small little hand trowel and I started digging around the burdock plant. And then I had this big hole and I, uh, you know, pulled the root up and took it in the kitchen and washed it off and chopped it up and made tea with it and drank it and sat there sort of like waiting for something to happen, you know, which mm -hmm. <laughs> with burdock isn't the kind of plant you have some like really magical, like, you know, pronounced effect. It's not mm -hmm. like, you know, using a, a much stronger, maybe strong is not the right word, more forceful herb, you know, or more like active herb. Um, but honestly, I think that like, what happened is all of the stuff that happened after like starting to learn herbs like that, you know, I just got more and more and more interested and I've got a pretty distractible and scatterbrained personality and sort of constitution. Um, and nature and herbalism is like so endlessly interesting that yeah. it's been able to capture and hold my attention, you know, for like, 25 or so many, you know, how many years afterwards. Um, yeah. So it sounds like plants are kind of a primary teacher for you. Like, yeah, they've been a primary teacher. And um, I think like the first herbalist that I met, um, I went down, I guess the first herbalist that people know of that I met, actually the first herbalist that, um, that I met, there's just a guy in Detroit named Gary Wantaja. Um, I think that's how you say his name. I've known him for so many years like easily 25 years. I don't know that I have his name down pat, but he's got a shop called Nature's Products. And um, he's been there since the seventies at least. And, you know, I would, I would go in there and buy, you know, herbs by the ounce. And then, you know, um, Gary's a pretty like even keel kind of like more introverted observant guy. And, you know, I would go in there and sometimes he'd just, you know, fill up a bag of stuff for me and he'd make a couple comments. Uh, but after he saw that I was like really sincerely interested in this, you know, when I would go in there, I think I would lose maybe an hour or two hours. I would just hang in, you know, talk to him as much as I could. Um, and so that was, he was like the first like really plant connected herbalist that I got to know. And I still find him to be like an absolutely brilliant herbalist that nobody, you know, outside of the area knows about. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think maybe three years into it, I went down to the United Plant Savers Sanctuary, talked, uh, I met Paul Strauss, I met Matthew Wood, I met Rosemary Gladstar. Um, and that was like the first kind of like 
herb community thing that I went to and stayed in touch with Rosemary and Matt, you know, over the course of, of many years um, and communicated with them. And, you know, both of them have made a significant impact on my learning and trajectory. And some of it is information wise. Um, a lot of it with Rosemary is like, I've just kind of really inspired by her as a human being that she's mm -hmm. like, so cooperative and so kind and so supportive to so many people. Yeah, it's um, incredible. Yeah, and Matt was also like that with me. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't in, at any point really formally study with Matt, but Matt saw that I was like seriously into it. And um, his attitude towards me from the get-go was like, oh, you're really into this? I'll do what I can to help you out. So he sent me like a draft copy of his traditions or his practice of traditional Western herbalism Cool. Book, you know, like I think yeah. years before it came out and it's actually a much bigger um, book than what was eventually published. Mm -hmm. And I just kept meeting um, a bunch of people who were like that as I started to go to um, different events and conferences and get to know people and eventually get to be known by people. Um, I found that I was really lucky because most of the people that I met were really interested in being cooperative as opposed to competitive. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm super grateful for that because I know that that's not everyone's experience. I have met people, uh -huh. you know, who, um, you know, were like, oh, my teacher was really hard on me. And I was like, well, why does, why does, like, I don't understand why that needs to happen. You know, I guess some people might prefer that. They might want to um, be more choleric and learn through challenge. But um, I mm -hmm. think learning through like kindness is a more, more my speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's this, this thing in, in our culture where like uh, if you go to public school or most schools, you're like uh, trained to learn from authority. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so people have this kind of like guru mentality over like you have to have this teacher that that dispenses their knowledge to you. And then, you know, then you can then you can learn. But I think this way that that you've done it of just following the interest and the pull of the plants uh, that's a, that's a really good way to, to learn, uh, deeply about something. And then also it seems like with Matthew Wood and Rosemary Gladstar, it's not like they were your peers necessarily, but you, they weren't like teachers either, like kind of in between like a mentor and a peer relationship. Mm, yeah. They were like occasional mentors, you know, like with Matt stuff, you know, he gave me this, this draft text and I, poured over it, but I didn't have like a ton of back and forth interaction with it. You know, honestly, like puzzled over it for quite a long time. And I was like, I don't know if I really jive with that. And then slowly I started to pick up um, different things. And one of the things and I've known Matt, you know, over the course of all these years um, is that, you know, when we get together and we'll talk, he'll be like, well, where did you come up with that from? And I was like, wait, I didn't come up with that from you. Like, oh, I guess like <laughs> I, I was inspired by, you know, something that you said and the way that the way that I learn and actually the way that um, I maybe try and teach is like, you know, rather than like the teacher knows something and you're going to learn it from them. And then after you know what they know, then you know, this thing too, uh -huh. is like everyone has their own kind of understanding of how to navigate, you know, not just herbalism, but their life in the world and relationships and everything like that. And it's very personal and unique. It's a creative art form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at certain points you meet people who the way that they share information connects with the way that you learn information. And from that, it doesn't mean that you're going to end up being like 
oh, so they said this and I think that they're right because I agree with them. And so I think this too, it's like, oh, they said this and that really gets me thinking. That inspires my thinking process. Yeah. And my thinking process takes me off in a direction and it may line up a lot with what they think. It may line up a little with what they think or it might diverge from what they think. And yeah. um, well, like a catalyst. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a, a catalyst thing. And it's a way that like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not like a person. I know that there are traditions and there are people who learn best by like, oh, there's a long tradition of this and it works like this and there's a reason and that's why you do it like this. And I'm, I'm just not one of those people, you know? And so um, what I have to do is actually, what I think I have to do is I have to sort of like, um, figure out with any new concepts. And I, I still learn like this is I often learn stuff from, you know, cause I have a bunch of friends now and we talk about herbs all the time. And, you know, there's a bunch of people I think are way more brilliant than I am. And so they say something and I was like, huh, I don't get that. Um, and I often have to like figure out how to simplify it down to a story or an analogy or something that I can do with like a koosh ball or a wooden castle or like, you know, <laughs> a catapult or a pool noodle. Um, <laughs> those, and, and this is all stuff that I've worked into my teaching and people, people will be like, oh, that's so cool that you do that to teach these concepts. And, you know, that's part of why I do it is to teach the concepts, but a bigger part of the, it's cause that's not how I have to learn, you know? Uh -huh. um, yeah. I've, you know, I've been around herbalists teaching about like gabinergic versus dopinergic versus serotonergic herbs for so many times. And I've tried to learn it so many times. And honestly, I don't, I don't think like that at all. Right. Yeah. Um, but when I talk, you know, to people about the herbs that they use and how they use them and you take away those terms, it's like, oh, I use it for those indications too. Oh, I use it for those indications too. I use it for those indications too. So sometimes I think like, you know, there may be concepts that um, can be explained in, you know, the terminology that we would use today, more of a physiomedic or physio, um, physiological or pathophysiological model that you can understand that way, or you can understand it in a different, more sort of like extrapolative, um, qualitative manner. And they're the same concepts. Um, and yeah. so that's, I mean, I, I know that a lot of people will talk about me and a lot of people will use the word like they they'll maybe compare me to other herbalists and I was like oh gosh that's that's a tough comparison mm -hmm. um, <laughs> or you know they'll say that I'm a clinical herbalist and I really just think I'm a folk herbalist you know my, mm -hmm. my understanding of herbs is a folk understanding of herbs I really struggle with um complicated language and um you know if if I can't sort of like simplify it down to something that that makes like a, a kind of comment. Actually, if I can't simplify it down to something that I can explain to someone who doesn't know much about herbs at all and have them be like, oh, I get it. I have a hard time getting it myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think of you as a folk herbalist that also has a really strong balance of scientific knowledge. Um, so it's interesting to hear you, you talk about how it takes a pool noodle for you to sometimes understand these concepts and you know to explain them. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I know that a lot of people um, and that, that live outside of Michigan, you know, have, have, I've taught at a whole bunch of different conferences and stuff. And um, at conferences, I never have like all of the stuff, but um, here 
it's like I'm constantly I've got little bike horns and koosh balls and <laughs> pool noodles and like they're in, integral like um, occasionally I'll do like a whole weekend where I'm teaching on energetics and I give the people a list and they're like I need three donuts like you need three <laughs> donuts I'm like yes they have to be like plain cake donuts they can't have icing in them you know <laughs> because I want to use them to explain tissue states. And, you know, it's easier for me, like I can pass around those three donuts and people will get it. Mm. And that um, the, the prop or the silly toy ends up being something that carries the understanding with it. Right. Yeah. So rather than someone, you know, listens to what I say and they take a whole bunch of notes and they're like, oh, okay, I've got that down and I'm going to go back and read through my notes and study it. Um, like I feel successful when someone stops taking notes and they're like, oh yeah, the donuts, right? You know, like the one donut was soaked in water overnight and the other donut was dried out in the oven overnight. And that's like dryness and dampness, Oh, cool. Um, you know, all right. I have these big, you know, garden shears that I like to um, use to explain like tension and spasm. And uh, uh. that's always fun, especially for people in the front row. <laughs> I, a little scary I, maybe yeah because there's you know like like we've all been in lockdown in you know such a way that in-person classes uh and distance has had to increase but it's often been that there were people in the front row and i'm wildly snapping you know um <laughs> garden shears together and people are leaning back they're yeah. sort of frightened and i'm like this is what i love in classes right <laughs> gotta have an element of danger yeah yeah, yeah an element saying. of danger and i mean i don't want to become um a teacher, and I know this can happen to all different kinds of teacher where um, ultimately, you know, because I'm teaching a lot of the same information over and over and over and over. I have a course that I do every year, you know, and I have certain classes that I do every year and um, it can get repetitive. And so yeah. I want to think about how to make this fun for me too. And so yeah. sometimes I think like, what can I get away with? Like, what's the <laughs> ridiculous thing that I can do? And not just to do something ridiculous, but to do something ridiculous that is a teaching story or a teaching, you know, yeah. like little skit or something um, and pull it off and have it work. And, you know, it sticks in people's memories together. So how did you first get into teaching? Uh, I got nagged into it by people. Um, I had no, <laughs> no inclination to teach at all. And um I was working at this place called Upland Hills uh, Ecological Awareness Center. And um, what would happen is we would have fires there and people would step barefoot around the fire and step on hot coals all the time because they, they didn't look down, right? If you're barefoot around a fire, you have to look down. Um, and depending on the time of the year, I might go and you know grab some cinquefoil or I might grab some wild bergamot or I might grab some violet leaves or I might grab something else. But it was really through like, you know, treating minor burns of feet on coals and going and getting something different every time. People were like, oh, you should start doing classes there hmm. because the place that um, Upland Hills uh, shortened down to Upland Hills, you know, they did all kinds of classes on, oh boy. Um, renewable energy and uh you know tracking skills and like sort of traditional skills type stuff and you know naturalist programs and so it was like a really good place and after getting yeah. nagged for a while i was like okay yeah i guess i can do like an herb walk and herb walk sounds easy and the first class that i taught there was like a seven hour herb walk um, wow like 20 pages of handouts and we just <laughs> went out and we walked around and honestly it it really took me like maybe another 10 years before I was like, 
I could probably do like two or three hour classes and people might like those too. <laughs> <laughs> Not just seven hours. Right. Right. Uh, but you know, still oddly I'll, I'll get to places and I'll like walk around and I'm like, Oh wow. Can I really fill up this time? Like, do I have enough to say? And I know it's an irrational thought because I'm uh, a chatterbox, but <laughs> It is, it is still sometimes I get somewhere and I'm like, there's just these five plants, you know. Um, <laughs> but where a lot of that comes from is like, I, you know, again, I like to tell lots of stories, but I also like to take lots of questions. I think that um, that's one of the things that makes everything really interesting for me is like, if it's just me teaching and just me saying like, this is the stuff that I know, then I, it really would be easy to fall into just like saying the same stuff all the time. And, you know, like play tape, rewind, play tape, rewind, play tape, rewind, play tape, <laughs> rewind. Um, and when people ask questions, granted, they often, they ask a lot of the same kinds of questions because mm -hmm. there are certain questions that make sense to ask um, when you're talking about a certain plant or when you're talking about a certain concept. But, um, you know, all the different people who come in ask questions and it's really great when someone asks a new question and I have to be like, oh, I don't have like, I can't like rifle through the files and think like, oh, this is what I say to the answer to that question, you know, because everyone always asks that question about how to make a tincture or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and in those instances, um, you know, I often will think up new stuff and then I'm like, okay, well, I have to remember this so I can use it again. Or sometimes I'm like, I did not pull that off well. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, having students ask you questions, it keeps it fresh. And I think you learn too, as a teacher mm -hmm. from your students and their questions, because you have to explain it on a, you know, deeper level. And you're explaining it. I also have, um, I, I have a course that I do every year, um, or a school that I run every year um, called Lindera. But um, I also do like a lot of community classes. So like, you know, there's a, there's a three hour or a six hour herb walk that you can come to, maybe it's two and a half hour. I don't do much shorter than that. Hmm. Um, or I do stuff for gardener groups or I do stuff for homeschool groups or I, you know, basically if someone's going to like ask me um, to do something, I can make it work to make a living. Then I'd be like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And the diversity of people who come to those classes and the different backgrounds gardeners ask different people or mm -hmm. gardeners ask different questions than people who are into like traditional skills ask different yeah. people from you know like the the i i follow this kind or that kind of diet group you know mm -hmm. and so that sort of like diversity of people coming into it and they may have no experience. So even the, um, the questions that, that sort of open classes I get are different than when I have a class where the people who are in the class are like mostly herb students. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that you um, on your website that you also offer personal, like one-on-one -on -one education, educational consultations. And so I was yeah. wondering if that is um, kind of like your, your go around of FDA compliance and like, um, medical laws, medical laws, and not like treating, diagnosing diseases. If you just put the it, health it, into the hands of the person that's coming to you. That is exactly you know? the, mm -hmm. the direction that I'm going for uh -huh. with it. I mean, um, I think the link is still like herbcraft.org slash consults. Mm -hmm. Um, but I took away the word consultation. I called it personal wellness classes mm -hmm. and I've just, you know, reframed the whole, the whole thing is basically like, 
let, you know, come in with whatever kind of thing and questions that you have going on Mm -hmm. and like, let's talk about it. And I will like basically tell you like what my perspective is on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that framing it that way, it does get around. So, you know, like it's a personal wellness class. So it's more educationally based in nature. Um, When I eventually, you know, make some suggestions, they basically, I frame them as like, these are ideas for your consideration, not like, this is your protocol or this is what you should do for this mm-hmm. to happen. Yeah. And I like that model. In some I really ways it's like the, that. Yeah. It's in some ways it's the same thing that I would do, you know, for when, when I was calling them consultations anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I found that, you know, and there's a reason for this, but a lot of people would be like, you know, like I'm, I'm less interested in the hows and whys just tell me like what I should take and how much and how often. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, as someone who is, again, a chatterbox was, was not really good at that. Um, you know, I wanted, I always wanted to provide the context. I always wanted to provide the, like, this is why. And part of that is, is if let's say someone, you know, and I know insomnia can be more complicated than this, but let's say someone can't sleep and I, I make a tincture that's got a ton of hops in it and I give it to them and they're like, wow, I could feel that sedative quality of the hops and I slept better this is working. It's really easy for that person to then like continue to use that. But if someone has like, I don't know, like, you know, psoriasis or eczema or something that is going to be like a long haul sort of like issue to address, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to get better in five days. And it's certainly not going to get better. Like, you know, like after the first squirts of tincture or cups of tea, um, I feel like if they understand what the rationale is, they will stick with it for a longer haul yeah. than if they, you know, think like, oh, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of weeks and I can't tell the difference, you know, like I want to basically set people up for like when something's going to be a longer haul and when something might be more immediate. Um, yeah. Help them understand yeah. it. Yeah. Like, yeah, to do the, the best I can. And, and also like, um, I think for, for anyone who's working, trying to fit, like establish their practice and everything, there's like... <laughs> What I, what I consider like my really good clinical herbalist friends and they, they can say things like, oh, you know, expect to see results from this in so many days or so many weeks and blah, blah, blah. And I've just never been good at that. I've always been like, it depends. I don't know. It depends on how, with how consistent you are with it. It, can, it depends on how, you know, established your condition is. It depends yeah. on like other lifestyle factors. Yeah, your like, diet. Yeah. So, um, to me, it's just like framing this as a, you know, I want to give you, and I give people a ton of resources. So after I talk with them, you know, I usually send them like a summary so they don't have to keep up with my rambling, <laughs> you know, which can be here, there, and everywhere. Um, a summary of like, you know, so these are the sort of like foundational nutritional and dietary and lifestyle things that you would, you know, I would think would be important. And then maybe here's like two or three herbal things to do. Uh, and not like a hundred herbal things or just one herbal things, but like, yeah. you know, a tea to drink. And I also like to tell people upfront, I think it should be on my page that like, you know, um, I, I tell people to drink tea because I know that a lot of herbalists um, will see people and, you know, their clients will be like, well, do I have to drink the tea? And it's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of our thing where herbalist tea is, is you know, important. Yeah. Um, so, you know, trying to provide a lot of information in now that all being said, like I've always been, um, consultations are things that I often do 
um, not, well, they're not things that I do full time because I, um, I teach, I learn, I wildcraft, I make tinctures and I do all of this stuff. And um, to keep my distractible self um, engaged and not to burn out on one of them. Um, I've always, you know, done everything kind of, I probably the thing that I do the most is teaching, but um, all of those things play in uh, mm -hmm. to, to what I'm doing. So I've never had like a crazy busy practice. I've been asked a couple of times, like, you know, how many people do you see in a week? And it's like, Oh, you know, some weeks, like two or three, some weeks, nobody, mm -hmm. you know, it depends. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the things that you do partially because I'm out of town, partially yeah. because, you know, I'm doing something else or I'm working on some other project partially because like, I, you know, I don't want to get burned out by something. Um, but it's, it's been something where like, I think that practice is important, but I also do a lot of informal stuff. You know, I do a lot of, uh, someone will contact me and, you know, if, if I were to do like what I would consider like a full intake, it could take like two and a half hours. And some people just don't have two and a half hours you yeah. know, travel time to get out to where I'm at. So often what I do is I say, you know, like first is, you know, do I have space and time open? What's going on in my life? You know, can I schedule stuff? And then um, I think what, you know, I'll ask the person, like, what do you feel like you can do? You know, how far away do you live? How long does it take you to, well, back when we could get here, um, how long is it going to take for you to get here? And how much time do you feel like you can spend? And if someone said like, oh, you know, I can like kind of like a lot the afternoon or a lot the day, I'd be like, oh, great. We can spend a bunch of time talking. And if someone said maybe like, well, I've got kids, you know, mm -hmm. and I have to get back to them. I have got someone watching them, parents, a partner, friends, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I can't have it be like a five hour ordeal or a four hour <laughs> ordeal. I'll be like, oh, okay. So let's try and like meet with as much time as you have. And then, you know, we can follow up later on the phone and do, you know, like I can collect more information. Um, but you did back before the virus and all the, the distancing instead of like, you know, um, not connecting with people in person as much. It, it's always been really important with me to at least get a chance to see people in person. And now I've been compensating and doing stuff on the phone. Um, and I, it's not like, I don't think you can do a good job like that, but sometimes I do find myself wishing like, Oh, I just wish I could be in a room with the person. Like, yeah. just to, like get a feel for, yeah. For them and, so are um, you, are you like gauging um, their constitution and, you know, sort of using their energy to um, inform your like suggestions? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, like there's a certain amount of like, so, so someone like Margie Flint, who's awesome, you know, can, mm -hmm. can do a ton with facial diagnosis. And I've learned some of that from her, but I'm by no means awesome at that. But I think that just, you know, spending time with somebody, you can sort of like get the feel of like, you know, um, small facial expressions or body language yeah. or, you know, whether or they're smell. super, well, you can see people <laughs> yeah. fidgeting, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know? So like if someone was talking to me on the phone, um, you know, they wouldn't see that like anytime I say anything, I'm like fidgeting and my feet are moving up and down and my hands are <laughs> gesturing, you know, cause maybe like, you know, even on Skype, when you're just seeing the top of someone's Skype, <laughs> Zoom, whatever they're using now, um, you're just seeing like someone's, you know, head and upper torso, you're maybe not picking the fact that they're like twitchy or they're fidgeting and all of that comes yeah. into place. And there's also like, 
just a, I, I don't have a more technical word than vibe, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's very important. To be- you might like be with someone and be like, oh, you know, would I, would I give this herb or that herb? Like, no, I would totally give that herb. Right. Like, you yeah. would pick up from being in the room with someone uh, versus not. Um, and so we're all compensating, you know, and yeah. working via uh, video chats or Facebook messenger or zoom or like, People still use Skype, I hear, or Discord. My <laughs> kids would talk me about Discord mm-hmm. um, or by the phone. And I think that you can certainly, you know, help with that um, situation by having uh, time to talk with people. But again, you know, sort of going back to how I always did it, um, I would, you know, try to ask the person, like, what are you looking for? Some people want, like, the big picture of everything. And some people just, they don't, they don't want to stop eating gluten. They <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to stop eating gluten either, but <laughs> right, right. You know, like they're just, that's not where they're coming. They're just like, Oh, you know, you can give me something that's palliative and you know, I don't, I can still eat, you know, um, pizza, you mm-hmm. know, like I'd right now where I'm at, that sounds better to me than like going through the whole, like, you know, well, I think you need to like add this and take away that. And yeah, you know, cause that can be overwhelming for somebody. And I think that, um, all of that is very important because there's definitely the whole reality of obstacles to cure. And, you know, if someone has magnesium deficiency or they do have a food allergy and they're not pretending to it. Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't necessarily feel like we, that always needs to be the place that we start. I uh. think that like a huge part of what we do when we interact with people in terms of, you know, consults and personal work is we're like the initial thing that we have to do is establish like a relationship with the person. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that we can get sort of like a basis of like trust and, yeah. you know, respect, you know, like, Oh, you know, do I want, like, before I stop eating gluten, do I really, you know, feel like the person who's telling me this is someone that I want to listen to, you know? So I usually wait maybe yeah. If I can, I'll wait like two or three visits before I tell someone like that's oh. smart. Yeah. We're, we're on an elimination diet right now. And uh, oh, fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> How long are you doing it for? 60 days. 60 days. Yeah. Yeah. She's taking Tammy Sweet's A&P class uh-huh. mm-hmm. online. So, so that's I've noticed that the length of time has, has like shifted and changed a lot since I first learned about them. Like mm. it was initially everyone was saying two weeks. And then it was like, you know, two to three weeks and three to four weeks and four to six weeks. Uh-huh. So, now it's two months. Um, well, yeah, I think, I think Paul Bergner um, does 40 days and mm-hmm. Tammy Sweet suggested doing it for a little bit longer. Cause I mean, if you think, if you think about like, I've had 34 years of eating dairy mm-hmm. gluten. And so like, is two, four weeks really going to make that much of a difference? Like um, as far as. Well, healing the gut, healing the gut. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're doing it. It's winter. It's a, it's a good time for us um, because it's not as busy that, you know, we can actually spend time like cooking roots and (laughs) you're locked um, inside. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) totally. So Jim, one of the first places that I heard about you actually was uh, an energetics class that you're doing on like Facebook, like, I don't know how many years ago. Okay. that seems to be like a crucial part of your whole thing is like the energetics. So for folks who aren't like aware of what energetics are, which in my opinion ties everything together. Yeah. What are, what is it? I think so too. Um, 
So I would describe I, I, across many different cultures. Um, well, I guess it depends on where you live. So if you live in um, Portland, and I, I have I've taught in Portland for a long time, energetics is like oh, like the spiritual energetic quality of the herbs, and that's not largely what, what most people mean when they talk about energetics, right? Right, um, right. We would be talking about qualities that have been um, used in um, Islamic and Greek and Chinese and Ayurvedic and lots of different indigenous medicines all across the planet. I would actually generally say that this is most traditional system as medicine work on energetics. And we looked at these qualitative patterns that we generally call hot and cold and damp and dry, right? So hot and cold doesn't have to do with like their temperature. It's not like, you know, oh, you know, my temperature is higher, I'm hot, my temperature is lower than average, I'm cold. It more has to do with like a tendency towards increased reactivity or decreased reactivity. Mm -hmm. Um, dryness would be like not enough fluid in, in tissues. Dampness would be, you know, too much fluid in tissues. Um, and then um, through, through Matthew Wood, I started, I, I learned to include tension um, relatively like how much resistance to, uh, you know, um, the flow of energy in the body, often through like muscular tension, but also through mental tension that you have and laxity. So how much like tissue laxity um, do you have? And um, learning that from that draft book of Matthew Woods that I mentioned earlier, that became sort of the model that I used. And I kind of largely went back and one of the ways that maybe the way that I apply this is a little bit different from Matt is Matt often does this through um, primarily through tissue states. Mm -hmm. And um, I sort of like started going back more into Greek herbalism because I learned through this amazing, magical Tom Bombadil-like uh, herbalist named Christopher Headley, who lived in London. He passed a few years ago um, about the humoral temperaments. And, you know, they also had hot, cold and damp and dry and tense and lax. And this goes back to Greek medicine, which goes back to Egyptian medicine. Um, right. Yeah. And uh Largely what I do is kind of like big, big picture. I look at them and I look at people's like sort of constitutional dispositions, right? They have, everyone has a certain sort of constitutional disposition or a temperament or a dosha or whatever you call it in Chinese medicine. I'm not super familiar right. with that, right? They talk about the elements. Um, and those are their sort of like set base inclinations. And in Greek medicine, they would say that everyone had their unique temperament, their unique set of hot and cold and dry and damp and tension and laxity. Well, they wouldn't have said tension and laxity. Um, and they were healthiest when they were at their unique mix. And that would be called a state of eucrasia, right? But that often what people were dominant in, they would go into excesses of, and often what people had less of, they would go into deficiencies of, and that would throw him into imbalance, what they called dyscrasia. So eucrasia basically means you're in your temperament. Dyscrasia means you're out of temperament or you're in a state of distemperment. And that the, um, the goal of medicine was to, to keep shifting people back from um, their dyscrasia imbalance state back into their eucrasia balance state. And that didn't mean like that if you're balanced, you're right in the middle of hot and cold and you're right in the middle of damp and dry right? Because a certain uh -huh. person might be more constitutionally dry. They might be more constitutionally damp and you want to get right. them to what I like to call their sweet spot and not to like where you think they should be. Like everyone uh -huh. shouldn't be medium. You know, it's not like if everyone is medium, then everyone is healthy. Um, <laughs> you know, 
Some people who have a more damp constitution are healthy with a damper constitution. Some people who have a hotter constitution are hotter with a hot constitution, but we wanna keep that in check and not let their hot, hot constitution get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, right. Or have their dry constitution, you know, like take over and they're not thinking about nourishing it with, uh, you know, oils and fluids. Well, does it work the other way too? So like somebody who has a naturally a hotter constitution, if they get too cold, do you like, is it, is it easier for them to get too cold? Um, a question like that is a great question, but it goes into a lot of like, okay, let's look at, um, let's look at like what you mean in the specifics of it like that. Uh -huh, right. Right. So more often I find that people who have a dominance of something tend to go into that. Here's a pattern. Okay. It's a physiological one, but like a dispositional one that maybe illustrates the point is there is a, a temperament called, and I'm, I know I'm going from energetics into temperament, but they're sort of mixed up for me. There's a temperament in Western herbalism called choleric, right? Some people say choleric, that's fine. It's just not pronounced right. Um, so the choleric <laughs> temperament, you can say that it's okay. Um, but, but there's not a book called Love in the Time of Cholera. Right? <laughs> um, well, I mean, maybe there is. Just, yeah, <laughs> right, right. So someone say that. Um, so if, if you're a more choleric person, um, maybe the easiest way to think about that is you're sort of more like that type A personality, right? You sort of like thrive on going and doing and being challenged and that's like your motivation. And when, when you're um, stressed out or when there's opposition to say like something that you're doing, your tendency is to kind of be like, oh, well, I'm going to rise to the occasion and beat that obstacle because that's sort of like where you're energetically and temperamentally coming at it from. Um, but if your thing that is challenging you is overexertion and you respond to like overexertion by playing to your strengths, like mm -hmm. my strength is that I'm good at overcoming obstacles and you try to like do more to do that. Um, that's a great example of like a hot or excess energetic in someone's disposition sort of aggravating them. And they're wanting to respond to challenges of it by doing more hot stuff, right? Going into an excess state to overcome mm -hmm. it when, when it might make more sense. And this is like not something that comes uh, intuitively to, to dominant choleric people is be like, oh, I've been doing so much and I'm starting to get tired. I should really take a break and rest and like <laughs> not, not engage, you know, this, the, the thing or try and defeat the thing or try to overcome the thing. Yeah. Um, so, but going back to more, more pure energetics, um, I got into it learning from Matthew Wood. I started applying it more um, constitutionally. And then if I need to, so often if I meet with someone, I'll try to get a sense of like how they're presenting, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, when they learn about constitutions, whether it's doses or temperaments, they want to figure out like, what am I, you know, am I choleric sanguine or am I vata pitta or am I tridoshic or am I like metal, um, <laughs> Chinese metal, I think of headbangers. Yeah. Um, and then um, the direction that a lot of people go with that is to be like, oh, I'm going to learn about choleric sanguine, or I'm going to learn about, you know, vata pitta, or I'm going to learn about metal, and then I'll understand myself. But I think you need to learn like the whole panorama so that you can say like, oh, everybody in all of these systems has all of the qualities. Everyone always has hot and cold intention and laxity. 
um, and dampness and dryness in them. And so what I like to say is like, oh, you know, do I have dryness? Where is it at? Do I have dampness or fluid that's stuck in an area? Where is it at? Do I have tension? Where is it at? You know, um, where am, am I going into um, hot or more reactive states? And where am I going into cold and less reactive states? And then that, um, if, if we can pin down like, oh, there's a constitutional maybe tendency that someone has, but in a particular area, they have a different thing going on, then we could start to think about herbs to target that. So an example that I often like to use is like, what do you do when someone who has an inherently and, and just sort of like by their nature damper constitution and they get a dry cough? If you just say like, oh, they have a dry cough, you know, give a bunch of moistening herbs because that's what you do for a dry cough, you might aggravate some of their other damp areas or their damp constitution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you said like, oh, they have a dry cough, what is a moistening herb or a demulcent that is specific to the lungs that doesn't seem to work you know, as much constitutionally? And when I think about that, if I were thinking like I could give them marshmallow or mullen and both of those would be great for a dry cough, like the marshmallow is more gonna moisten across many different systems. And mm -hmm. the mullen, I think personally, is much more moistening to the lung tissue and not really a constitutionally moistening plant. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So that's, you know, so what I'm doing is I'm sort of like trying to look at both their overall constitutional state and how something is presenting in a place in their body or their tissue state, as Matt would say, um, and kind of like zoom in and zoom out so that I can keep both of those things on my mind. Um, Sometimes I think that um, part of what I do and why I think energetics is so cool is that it's just constitutional balancing. Yeah. Um, I was talking once with someone who was uh, asking me about a formula for cancer, which I don't know a lot about. And um, I looked at the formula and I was like, I would add some marshmallow to that. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that marshmallow had you know, a lot of actions to, you know, on cancer. And I was like, I don't know that it does either, but I know that, you know, often dryness of tissues is really common with cancer treatments and that all of the herbs that, you know, are in this formula are tending towards dryness and um, drying out tissues. And so I feel like we need to put that moisture in there to balance things out and to address that factor, not because of the cancer angle, but because of just what's going on in the tissues. And I think that um, a word that I like to use for energetic herbalism is that you're thinking about habitats and ecosystems of the body. Mm -hmm. cool. And the perspective that I have is either before or always alongside with asking herbs to do stuff for our bodies, right? Which we're always doing whenever we're asking um, we're using plants, whether it's providing nutrition or having an antimicrobial or anti-inflammatory effect. Um, alongside of that or before that, we always want to look and say like, what does the body want to be doing? And wow. is there some kind of imbalance that is getting in the way of that? So if someone has a respiratory infection, say, and their lungs are dry, sure, we could use garlic or we could use angelica or we could use osha or we could use elecampane as respiratory antimicrobials, right? But if they have dryness there, we would say like, well, we definitely want to 
moisten the lungs because the lungs and mucus also have antimicrobial and immune activities. And we don't want to use herbs while we're ignoring the fact that the mucus is dried out. And if the mucus is dried out, it can't perform like what your body would naturally be doing to deal with the illness. Right. So that's maybe where like, again, I use the word scientific. Like I don't think about myself so scientifically, but like to think about, um, you know, first, what is the body trying to do? What would the body naturally respond to something with? And is there an energetic imbalance that's inhibiting that? And if there is, what can we do to balance it out? And then we do other stuff on top of it. Or I often think maybe a way, uh, another way I could say this is like, we do the more energetic stuff and we do the anti stuff, the anti-inflammatory, the antimicrobial or the antiviral or the you know, antifungal or the anti this or the anti that on top of things that are affecting the ecosystem. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's an awesome framework because there's so many like herbs for the lungs, for example, but mm. um, to know which ones to give to the certain person, you really do have to look at all of these complex um, parts of the body as an ecosystem. And so Herbal Ener- Energetics really gives you that framework. Yeah, and the herbs. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's helpful, but also sometimes like if people... <laughs> you know, they don't understand that they ask me a question like, um, you know, like, like my, my sister-in-law has a cough. What should I give her? And I'd be like, I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> Depends on the no kind of cough. <laughs> I'm going to need to talk to your sister-in-law for five to seven hours. Right, right. I've got, I've got no clues on like what's good for a cough in general. I know what might be good for a cough. I could say in general that mullen is usually pretty good for a cough, but I think mullen is better for drier spasmodic coughs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, like uh, when I'm talking with students or asking about taking the course and they're asking about energetics, I'd be like, you know, like garlic is great for a cough, but garlic is warming and it's quite warming and it's quite drying. It's like hot and dry. Mm-hmm. And so even though everyone you give garlic to, it's going to act specifically to kill microorganisms in their respiratory tract because those, those antimicrobial oils get excreted mm-hmm. through your lungs, right? Yeah. and they come out with your breath. Yeah. Um, if your cough is drier, while the garlic is fighting the infections, it'll be aggravating the tissues. That's true. And maybe either there's something we could do to offset that, like mix honey into your garlic mm. um, to add a moistening quality to it mm-hmm. and to take some of the heat away and some of the dryness and temper it a little bit through formulation. Or maybe we can find a moistening herb that's going to work for you as well. And we don't need to use, you know, mm-hmm. The, the garlic so or maybe save all, garlic for like a really wet cough you know right yeah it's all very personalized yeah um, yeah makes sense and um you bring up marshmallow root um maybe think of mucilaginous herbs in general including like slippery elm and i just want to talk to you about the importance of using plants that are local to your environment um mm-hmm. and maybe some wild crafting and um, harvesting tips and the importance of like place. So I want to, I want to talk about that kind of stuff. If you want to maybe yeah. go into well, that. Like I said, I, you know, when I first started getting into herbs, you know, out in Okemos, like I was, I went immediately into harvesting stuff that grew around me and, you know, I was a, I still am. I'm, you know, mediocre botanist. I'm not like, I can't sit down with Michigan floor and just key stuff out at will, I can kind of like finagle between like 
photographs and related species that I know and sort of like nitpick through it, but it's not like my super skill set to be awesome at botany. But I've, I know a lot of the plants that grow around this area. And um, I guess maybe this ties together with the energetics in the term that one of the most important things if you are going to be a bioregional herbalist and you are going to um, be gathering stuff from around you or wildcrafting or foraging or whatever terminology you want to use for it, um, you have to go into it with an understanding of like habitat and ecosystem and plant communities in your area. So rather than thinking like, oh, there's stuff around me that I can harvest and that I can use, we want to think like, oh, there's all of these plants around me that have wondrous virtues, you know, that can help me out with all different kinds of things. Um, I want to think about sustainability and um, ecological responsibility as yes. a starting point and not retroactively. Yeah. 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 That, um, and I may frustrate some people here, but I know that in, you know, sometimes the the herbal community and sometimes the sort of foraging edible wild food community that a lot of people are like, they're so excited by the fact that there's stuff growing that does amazing things, whether it's amazingly nutritious or it's amazingly medicinal or amazingly nourishing in both of those fronts. Um, and that it's just out there for the picking that they might not be thinking right away, like, is this sustainable, right? Yeah. And um, I've also seen some sort of like resistance to it because people will be like, for example, it's really common in our part of the country, people like ramps, like are ramps over harvested or is it totally crazy? And some people will be like, I can't possibly be over you know, harvesting these ramps and they'll show a picture and it's like ramps as far as you can see. And I'm like, oh, so what you're saying is it's like the passenger pigeon, right? <laughs> you know, like, oh, there's so many, I could never put a dent in this. But as we know, the passenger pigeon is extinct now. And like, we have to take like a really long haul thing is to learn about a plant's growth cycle. And maybe one of the things that I often do, cause I do a lot of plant walks and I've, I've been doing plant walks um, devoutly, you know, since I started teaching classes, that's sort of like the, the main things that I, I do. And honestly, around here in, in my community where I live spring, summer and fall, this, they're, most of the classes that I do are plant walks. Um, Cause I think to myself, like, if I'm going to be teaching, what do I want to be doing? I want to be outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Visiting I want to be yeah. teaching people about plants and not just about plants, but taking them out to the plant community so they can see the context of the plant is growing in. And then, you know, spending yeah. between 15 and, and minutes and an hour on plants, you know, uh, and waxing poetic about them and talking about all of their stuff. Um, so I, I like to do that. And I, I always want to like, get people to think about like, there's all of these like really cool plants, like black cohosh is a really cool plant and ghost pipe is a really cool plant. Like there's no getting around that they're not. But I think it was Howie Brownstein um, in uh, Eugene, Oregon, who's just awesome. Who was, he said something to the effect of like, I can think of way more amazing stories about marshmallow than I can about ghost pipe. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I think about like, if I thought about what herb is more fundamental and foundational to my practice, like marshmallow is a much more important herb to uh -huh. have. And um, in my practice, there's, I mean, I use a bunch of different things. I don't know how many plants I use. It's probably like around 
200, you know, mm -hmm. but not that many all the time. Most of them right. I don't use. I keep coming back to this core of plants and mostly they're weedy plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. if they're not weedy plants that grow, you know, where I can harvest them and actually they often like, like harvesting, they grow better with harvesting. Yeah. Um, if they're not weedy plants, I really have to be sure that the ways that I can gather them are sustainable and not just in concept, but in practice. One of the benefits I have from, you know, wildcrafting for 25 plus years is that I can go back and I can see the stands I collect from and say like, oh, these plants are still here. Or ideally, if I can, like, oh, even though I've been harvesting these plants, you know, for 25 years, there's actually more of them now than there were before because of wow, yeah. maybe the way that I'm harvesting them or yeah. maybe that I'm actually doing like root divisions or I'm going out and replanting seeds. Um, right. So that's something that I think that uh, so cool. people should, they should think about sustainability as a forethought and not as an afterthought. Um, mm -hmm. And for any herbalists that are doing herb walks or foragers that are doing, you know, edible plant walks, that should be something that we like hammer in. Um, yeah. The long term, not just short term, instant gratification. Right, because if, if we're not going to see population decline until like ten years into it, uh -huh. then that's like we're going to start to see the population decline ten years into it, and then it's going to progress because you know, uh, right, right, ten years contributing to it, and you're maybe only starting to see that. Um, yeah. So I think being really open. Um, to sort of like when, when someone says like, oh, well, you know, I, I have these concerns about the sustainability of this, um, being really open-minded to that and not being defensive about something, which is easy to be defensive about something yeah. that you've been doing and feeling good about. Right. Um, Cause if you're looking at that field of ramps, that's like, oh, there's so many, how could I even make a dent? But then you zoom out and you see the whole state or the whole region and how it used to be filled with so many more. Right. Um, it, the perspective can change. And so like, yeah, being humble about it and, and open is important. Yeah. Super important. Um, I was going to say something else and then I think I lost it. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Darn. That just happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're pretty, we're actually, the hour has already passed. Yeah. Oh goodness. That, that happened so quickly. I mean, we can go on a little bit longer if you don't mind, but where we could. That's totally fine to go on. I've okay. Got, okay. I've got time. Okay, cool. Can this we, is, yeah, can we talk about how you um, sustainably harvest roots or rhizomes of plants? Yeah, what I tend to do with those, and some roots are easier to do this with, but let's just talk about Salmon Seal. Um, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is one that I think can be harvested sustainably, um, but I have a like an infinite amount of concern about it all the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So where I live... The wild salamon seal is polygonatum biflorum, variety biflorum. And it uh -huh. is not giant salamon seal. So it's not the polygonatum multiflorum, mm -hmm. which has big clumping roots. Mm -hmm. And it's not the salamon seal that goes a little bit farther south of where I live, um, polygonatum biflorum, variety commutatum, mm -hmm. which also has big chunky roots and tends to grow in clumps. This one grows as a thin running rhizome. And maybe the roots, uh, the rhizomes, are about as thick as my pinky finger, or sometimes they're like as thick as a drinking straw. Mm. Wow. And rather than going off in all directions, they tend to one and run in one direction and then branch off a little bit. Um, and so that was the species that I started mostly harvesting and using because it was what was growing here. 
And the way that I would do that is because they grow pretty shallow in the ground in most places. And so I'd find the plants in the fall um, after the top sort of turns straw yellow and they're dying back and all the energy is back in the root. I would feel around where the stem connects to the root in the ground, hoping it's not too heavy clay soil. Um, and then usually you can feel on one side of the, um, the stem, the sprout for next year's growth if you're gathering in the fall. So you wanna go to the other side then and feel around. And the, the rhizome is like, I, I wanna say to the botanists out there, yes, I am using root and rhizome interchangeably. Here, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the, You're all roots. As I said, I'm, I'm a mediocre botanist. Um, I'm using just sloppy language, bear with me. Um, so you feel around on the other side and then the, the rhizomes are like a string of kind of like starchy knuckles. Like imagine your finger bone and a string of starchy knuckles. Each one of those knuckles has a little indentation or a stem scar on it and indicates a year's growth. And I've seen like a, the plant maybe grows like a quarter to a half inch in a year. And I've seen it grow maybe like an inch in a year. And again, the thickness can vary. Um, and so what I would do is I would count back a few years, maybe give it about an inch or two, maybe usually like two inches. And then I would cut the rhizome and then pull up the back end of the plant. Um, I'm gesturing with my hands as I'm saying this. <laughs> right. Visualize here. I pulled the back end of the rhizome as far as I could until it either breaks off or rots out a little bit. Um, and by doing that, what I noticed is that it will continue growing as if right. there was no disturbance. And you could say like, oh, I do something similar, but I dig up the plant and I break off the back end and then I replant the crown. Um, and you could do that. But if you do that, like, you're replanting the rhizome, but all of those actual roots that were spread out in the ground, you know, um, are now going to be all like pulled out of the ground and then clumped back up into the ground and they're not going to be spread out anymore. And yeah. there's just more impact. I've seen that right. there's more impact harvesting it like this. Um, and what I started to notice is that over years harvesting salmon seal like that, I would start to see more plants in the area because where I had broken that root, it would end up sending up another shoot and then you would have two stems coming from the plant. Cool. And then those two stems would produce more flowers and then more berries and there were more berries falling on the ground. Um, yeah. But because this particular species of Salomon seal is um, much slower growing and much smaller in terms of like the amount of root that actually grows, like little teeny bits, um, I was on in the places that I harvested basically like an eight year rotation. I would harvest from one area and then another area and then another area. And after eight years, I would go back and harvest the same area again yeah. because it took that long for the roots to grow back. If I were to go back in like two or three years, it might've only grown like another, you know, like inch or two. Mm -hmm. And that's not really not enough to harvest again. Right. Um, so that would be an example of harvesting rhizomes. And what I would encourage is you can get plants from, you know, if you live in a place where this uh, Solomon seal is native, you can order a place from like a native plant grower um, and often get your state's chemotype or your bioregion's chemotype um, and then plant that out. And if you can get the larger polygonatum commutatum, it'll produce a lot more roots and it's a lot more sustainable. And if you're mm. growing stuff um, in your garden to get like the multiflorum uh, and plant that out, um, because I always worry that someone will 
really discover how amazing salamon seal is. And there's really like not a lot of other plants that do what it does to the same yeah. degree. Mm-hmm. And then just dig them up and harvest them irresponsibly. Yeah. And you know, it'll really cause very significant ecological disturbance to the plants populations. Mm. Yeah. They're in there. There's a little, there's a video on YouTube of you doing this. And while I'm being eaten alive by mosquitoes. Yeah. We were just watching that last (laughs) night. It looked very uncomfortable for you. (laughs) It was, it was something else. I had a a really fond time um, filming that awesome people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it was just like, it was a bear. And again, I do, I do um, herb walks all throughout the year. So this is part of my occupational hazard. Is yeah, like, mosquitoes. There are certain walks that there's like, oh, mosquitoes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A certain time of summer, if it's like damp woods, there's just, they're there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, there's also a video of you doing uh, sarsaparilla, which is one of, one of my favorite plants too. And mm-hmm. th- how you just snip the like little, um, what are they even called? Like the. I don't know nibs. what they're called botanically, but it's, it's <laughs> little nibs. The <laughs> tops, the top sticking out of the the runners um, that you can see all of the yeah, uh, like the leaf scars on it. I guess would they be yeah. leaf scars? Well, it's the same um, as like previous years years growth. Yes, yes. So um, I I like those because they have the um, that sort of like a more concentrated spicy flavor. Mm-hmm. And that I would do for making tinctures, but I don't do that for making teas because I don't feel like I could gather enough of them. Yeah, yeah. And we have that plan is like so common over here that I feel like um, a couple things is, yes, I am harvesting it, but often when you're in a stand of wild sarsaparilla, and I don't mean the Smilax species, I mean Aurelia nudicollis, mm-hmm. um, that all of the plants are connected by underground runners. And yeah. so like, trimming off uh, the tops where the leaves are growing out of them isn't like harvesting the whole plant or like, oh, you're killing the plant at all because they're connected. It's kind of like pruning the, the ends off of branches of a tree. Right, and that often stimulates growth. Underground, right? Mm. Yeah. And the place that it's such a common plant over here, I don't do it. But I, again, like not for making quantities of tea. I actually, um, although I think this plant is great in tea and I like it in tea a whole lot, I often don't use this one in tea because it's just, it would be too practically um i I said it would be too impractical Mm -hmm. for me to gather it in quantity uh for tea blends yeah i do gather it like that and make it in tincture and then because i primarily um use formulas and not simples Mm -hmm. uh, i feel like i can make a batch of tincture and use that and uh yeah that's a that's a, a nice and tasty plant um yeah, yeah, it's it's really good for you that you put those those ways of of harvesting out there. They're really important. To, it's important to know that you can like harvest plants and help regrow them by like, mm-hmm. you know, by doing it that way. Yeah, there's, absolutely. There's this other video we watched yesterday of you with hawthorn, and uh, that was a really cool video. We talked with um, a, a hoodoo practitioner last week, Stephanie Rose Bird. And she talked a lot about how the uh, mojo sack is like one of the key, like it's like the key element of, of root working in, in hoodoo. Mm-hmm. And how you mentioned, you mentioned about using the um, hawthorn berries, like in a medicine sack, putting it around your heart. Yeah. And how that can be effective in, you know, as effective as taking the, the medicine is it reminded me a lot of that. The, uh, the mojo mojo bag. Yeah. And how plants I know, work I on a that's... subtle level. 
it's so flaky, but um, I totally believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, there's something that I've been doing for a long time is um, I, when I teach classes, I mostly teach like the kind of herbalism that I do. And I do not teach a lot of like, maybe what some people would call like spiritual herbalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, the biggest reason for that is I want to be like accessible. I don't want to have like a niche group. I want to turn as many people onto herbs as I can. Right. So, um, yeah. and also I feel like I have my own spiritual relationship with plants and, you know, it's very like personal to me and idiosyncratic to me. And I wouldn't want to teach it in a way that if, if someone didn't relate to plants the way that I did, they would think like, oh, I'm just not good at that, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, I've been in classes where people are like, oh, we're going to do visualization exercises. And, you know, I probably can't visualize a cardboard box very good. You know, that's <laughs> the way that I connect with plants. I'm more of like a feeling and vibe and vibration kind of impression mm-hmm. finder. Yeah. Um, but when I do classes, I often talk about that or I'll talk about like, you know, um, you know, that Hawthorne has this sort of like, protective quality as a plant with abundance of medicine and yet protective thorns and you know you can you can wear it uh so that you can feel like you can have your heart open without being too vulnerable and um you know like this idea of a medicine bag um i know someone who made beads out of them and uh made this awesome hawthorne bead necklace that was like beyond cool wow achieving client um and um like i just that's something that i do and it's like weird and quirky and i believe that and um a little bit maybe sometimes again like you're meeting with a person and you're thinking about what are the options i'm going to suggest to someone some people seem more like oh yeah this is a person that's going to like wear <laughs> all thorn around their necks and other people are like no nah, i think that i'm going to lose some credibility right 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 yeah but when i'm teaching classes i'll often um talk about some of these issues and um, just put them out there. And some people like really jive on them and they like, I want a whole class of just that. And other people are like, oh, he's kidding and telling folklore, right? Like, <laughs> Interesting. So it's, it's nice when you have a mixed group and you see like some faces light up and some foreheads furrow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm doing it right. Yeah. Well, it's like everybody has their own own way of of uh, connecting with plants and their own like viewpoints and worldviews and so on. So it's good to be able to you well, know, reach say, everybody. But I would say, too, and some people would say, like, well, this is just, you know, it's not really the um, the herb doing it. And um, but I think if we think about herbs as catalysts, right, if you have something and you're wearing it around your neck over your heart and you can feel it there and you're conscious of it. Um, one of the things I think about using herbs that uh, I often feel like is in- incredibly important is connecting with your intention around using them. So rather than just like, I'm in a brush, I'm going to take a squirt of this and a squirt of this and a squirt of this and run out the door um, to be like, I'm in a rush, but I can take an extra 12 seconds to think like, this is why I'm taking this and take a squirt of it and sit with it, take a breath, maybe two or three breaths even in, in that 12 seconds. Um, and connect with your intention of why you're taking that. And I think that when you do that, stuff works better. And so if you're wearing something around your neck and you're aware of it, and every time you think like, oh, I can feel that bag there. This is why I have that bag there. That's what my intention is. It, it, that helps, you know, and the herbs being in the bag are a catalyst for that. You know, Mm -hmm. 
is the actual Hawthorne berry in the bag doing something or is it just the bag or is it an idea of the bag? Like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a way, it doesn't really matter if it works. It's less important to me right? yeah. um, than the fact that it's helping. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there are ways you can like, you know, rationalize, like, you know, taking, taking the time to, 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 think about your intention you're like getting out of that fight or flight mode you're like letting your subconscious accept the intention better and that might make your body like the parts that you're not conscious of Mm. uh, accept the medicine better you know but Mm -hmm. um yeah there's if it works it doesn't really matter what the the schematic is what the why why it works (laughs) to a certain degree Mm -hmm. but so before we wrap up, I just have one more uh, plant-specific question sure. about New England aster. Oh, think, yay. Yeah, New England aster. We, uh, we talked to Dana O'Driscoll, who studied I, with you. And... I listened to it, yes. Oh, really? Oh, cool. cool. Oh, and, sure. um, yeah, she said that it really helped um, her asthma, and I've um, used it in that way as well since then, um, and also found it effective for my asthma. So I, I was just wondering... Um, how you came to New England Aster and like, how did you learn about, about these aspects of it? Um, it was just basically curiosity. So um, I, I like to say that I, you know, like I don't know as much about plants as I wonder about plants. And I love the word wonder. Yeah. It both means like open-ended inquiry, right. To wonder about something. And it's also like a state of wonder, basically like a state of awe. And I think that, um, having both of those things going on and being an active way that you learn about plants is really helpful. Um, my, my wife and I were going out to like the Michigan Renaissance Festival. And as we were walking through the parking lots, mowed grass and, you know, like a ton of people and a ton of cars, we saw this little trail going off and there was a, a bunch of meadow plants and then a little pond back there and we walked back there and we sat by the pond and it was pretty um and you know we i looked around and there was like maybe five different species of aster growing like at the time they were aster genus now they're symphiotrichum genus or maybe i just didn't know that they had changed to symphiotrichum (laughs) um that's that's totally a possibility and I was like, wow, I don't know how to use any aster genus plants. Like I know aster family plants, like there's a whole bunch of them, but I don't know how to use any aster genus plants. I have to like, and there's a whole bunch growing around me. I have to go and look that up. And I went home and I looked it up in the books that I had at the time. And I just didn't really find anything. Um, there is a, a short entry on heartleaf aster in William Cook's Physiomedical Dispensatory. There is um, a short entry on some asters in, um, uh, King's American dispensatory that I was able to find by looking at online stuff, but it seemed like nobody was using them. Right. Um, if you, if you look at ethnobotanies, um, you can find some uses of the native asters. Um, but what I started doing is like, Oh, I just have to go around and know that they're not poisonous. Um, so I walked around and I, I, whenever I passed by an aster, I'd crush up the flowers and smell it and taste it. And when I got to the New yeah. England aster, I was so purple, so intensely purple. Mm-hmm. And I squeezed it and it was sticky and kind of resinous and mm-hmm. quite aromatic. And I was like, okay, if it's aromatic, it's got medicinal qualities. I think yeah. we can yeah, just there's something going on. It. If it's got resins and essential oils, it's got quality, a lot of virtues to it. And so I like ate some, some flowers and um, 
sat there and waited to see what happened. And then it was just kind of like, ah, looking up at the clouds. And I had another job at the time, I was on my lunch break and I totally needed to get back to work. And I'm like, I'm not in a rush. And so I initially, <laughs> thought, I initially thought like, oh, this is gonna be nerving. And um, I think it's in Cook's uh, dispensatory. He talks about um, aster cordifolia. So the heart leaf aster having like a nerving quality um, and I made some tincture out of it. And when I took the tincture, rather than having a primarily nervous system effect, it had this like immediate and significant respiratory relaxant effect. And I was like, oh, wow, I could feel that right away. Um, and so, you know, I had made up a bunch of tincture and, you know, I started trying it for myself. And when people had respiratory tension, I started using it for them. And basically the indications that I found for it that seemed to hold, hold through is just general respiratory tension that is not like spasm, like you'd use lobelia for, but like a quivery sort of like reactive, like I could go into a, a <coughs> coughing, yeah. you know, gotcha. at any point in time, I feel like at any point in time, if I were to cough once, I would cough a, a bunch more. And yeah. then if I stopped coughing, I would always be right at the verge of coughing again. Right. So that sort of like quivery just under the cough threshold tension seems uh, to carry through all the juices. Um, coughing between changing environmental things. So like going from warm to cold or mm. cold to warm. So like house to outside, outside yeah. the house, kind of instigating it. Um, I think it was a student who asked me like, oh, would this be good for asthma? And I was like, I don't know. I don't have asthma. Try it out. <laughs> and they tried it out and said, like, I think they tried it out for their, on their sister and then told me like that their sister called them the next day and said, like, could this possibly be helping in the next day? Because I've needed to use my inhaler less than I normally do. Cool. Wow. And then within maybe like a week or two, I heard the exact same um, scenario from someone else who'd been trying it. And so then I started using it and I would say that I don't know of anything, and this certainly is not gonna work in every single case, but I don't know of anything that is like a better first thing to try for asthma um, mm. or for respiratory tension. And it's become one of absolutely the most important respiratory herbs that I use. So like if someone says like, what's your most important respiratory herb? You know, I'd be like, New England aster, mullein, marshmallow, you know, garlic, angelica. Um, a lot of times when people learn about, and even me, I learn about some herb that nobody uses and, um, you know, like avens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think like, oh, there's avens. I could use avens. I know how to use avens. I use avens sometimes, but <laughs> I could also, I could also use like blackberry or raspberry or agrimony or like a bunch of other stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, like I wouldn't be like Avens is a special plant, but I don't know of anything else that works like it does. Yeah. But New England Aster, Aster is the special plant that I don't really know of anything oh. that works quite like it does. That's so cool. And it does seem to have um, a building and restorative effect, you know? So I know that like, uh, I've talked with Dana and she says, like, she totally is like, this is a respiratory trophil restorative. And I think I'm, I'm on board with that, you know? It's a subjective claim. There's no board of who gets, you know, what herbs get to be trophy restorative, like make your mm -hmm. case. <laughs> um, but I think that it has more than just a, a, a palliative action because I've repeatedly seen people who need to use their inhalers a lot less after using it for a while. And I've often seen that those people 
can can decrease their dosage of New England Aster and retain its effects. Hmm. That's just so cool. You know, yeah. you like you think about like how did people like learn how to use herbs for stuff and that's how mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know? you taste yeah it, there's a bunch it. of herbalists who are like i wonder what will happen if i try this right <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know i know i know that there's also a bunch of people who are like oh no the plants guide us and i don't know that the that there was there was no conscious voice where the the new england master is like taste me you know um, you're like you're beautiful and yeah I that happens but you. i was just curious i yeah. was just like i was i wondered about it and i let that wonder lead me um one of the things that that I like to think is that um, you know we learn about herbs through our intellect and our uh, through our imagination and through being inspired, right? And the intellect yeah. is like, oh, you know, my burn is hot and dry. This aloe is cold and moist. This aloe would probably feel good on my burn, mm. you know, or like my ulcer is like damp and weepy. I bet an astringent would help to dry it up and make it less swollen and inflamed and weepy. Um, so that's like using your intellect and, you know, you're being inspired would be like, oh, I should use plantain for this. Right. Mm-hmm. And not because I, you know, I know I need to use a, something that's mildly astringent and mildly emulsant that has a drawing action and has allantoin in it. You're just like, I should use plantain here. Like mm-hmm. it strikes you and your imagination, I think is like when you're wondering about stuff and you're using your, it doesn't mean making stuff up. <laughs> means like you're wondering stuff up, you're using like your, your own personal creativity to be like, huh, you know, what would happen if I do this or try this herb or mix this herb in that herb or use this herb in a way that, you know, like um, I hadn't ever heard of or thought of because it just struck me to do so. And all of those things, I think, complement and balance each other. Yeah. Because some people are maybe like too rigidly intellectual you know, right. that they won't try stuff if they can't rationalize why it would work. And some people are like too rigidly um, into like the inspired thing. Like, oh, I, I don't want to have to think stuff out at all. I just want to like, <laughs> know that it's the thing that's going to work, you know, and that happens. That absolutely happens. It happened to me. That happens to a lot of people, but I don't think that's a solid basis, you know? Right. And then I think right. like the creativity is what makes herbalism an art. It's what makes it mm. a form of creative expression. Um, and what makes it so fulfilling in a lot of ways is because we all express that, you know, we all come up with our own formulas for the same condition that are different and unique uh, and express not just a therapeutic rationale, but a flavor of the herbalist who created it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, also everyone has their own temperaments and so on. Like people are, some people are more intellectual. Some people are more imaginative. Some people can hear the voices of plants. Some people can see plant spirits and some people can't, I can, you know, I feel like I'm a lot more like you, like more uh, intuitive, like vibes kind of thing. I never hear any, any plants speak to me, but like by using my intellect, by spending time with the plants, by tasting them. Experimenting. Yeah. Isaac. (laughs) (laughs) It's Aster. <laughs> Did you hear something? <laughs> yeah, I got a short, short enough of breath here. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we're, so we're this is we're we're I think we're at an hour and a half now, so we should probably uh, probably let you get on with your day. Mm-hmm. This yeah, has if been you a leave one- it up to me, we'll just keep bantering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> we'll have to just have you on again sometime if you're open. Oh, I- I would be happy to. Awesome. Cool. Cool. 
Well, uh, I guess we'll say goodbye for now. And thank you so much, Jim, for um, chatting with us and being on the podcast. Yeah. Farewell, friends. And I just have to do one thing because I have to be practical. Oh, yeah, yeah, my yeah, website, actually. My website. Right. right. I was just... Yeah, you're right. I have two. So there's herbcraft.org. Uh-huh. And that's where there's a bunch of writing and a bunch of free stuff. Um, but I also have online classes and herb walks at herbcraft.podia.com. Uh-huh. Okay. So Herbcraft is H-E-R-B-C-R-A-F-T. And then Podia is P-O-D-I-A.com. So herbcraft.podia.com. And um, the stuff that's on there are from classes and walks that I did. There's a whole bunch of stuff up there now. Um, and and well created with the help of my awesome wife, Stephanie, who is just the greatest. That's great. And we'll put those up in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So good. This reminds me of like, um, I would, I would teach at conferences and like, I'd get done with my class and someone's like, you never like said what your name was or like what you <laughs> anything to promote yourself. And I'm like, Oh, I know I'm not good at that. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I would have, I would have uh, asked you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's but, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's important for people to have that information like you are a great teacher and i think oh, a lot of people you. you know will be inter- are interested in studying with you and it's you know that one of the blessings of everything being online which there are a lot of problems with it but as you can study with people who might live you know halfway across the world yeah farther away for sure but you won't have the same plants i guess <laughs> yeah not the same plants you know but uh you know one of the things i think uh, as someone who's very into energetics is like the concepts carry over. So you right. may not have um, staghorn sumac where you live, but you probably have a sour astringent somewhere where you live. You yeah. Know, that is going to be cooling and drying and toning. I think that's just so important. Understanding the framework, then you can fit the the pieces into that mm-hmm. and, and yeah, be and use what's, what's around you. So, so you're, you're teaching um, this year still. Yeah, I'm going to awesome. be doing uh, all my classes are going to be outdoors um, with people spread out and me talking really loud, which means my voice will be raspy all year long. <laughs> um, you get a megaphone. Well, it's kind of it's like there was a, a weekend that I taught last year, you know, with 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 people spread out at six feet. It's like I have to talk really loud. If it's windy, mm. I have to talk really loud. If they're oh, my gosh, if there's aspens around or cottonwoods, it's like I really got to be screaming. And then I <laughs> I found so scratchy and I had this like irritable cough or my scratchy throat that I was mm. like, I don't feel like I can go and see anybody because I'm like, <laughs> everyone's going to think you're, you right, have everyone's the, gonna think the I'm virus. Sick. Like, ah, <laughs> right. So I stuck close to home and took lots of demulsions. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good. Okay. Well, thank you, Jim, so much. Uh, have a great day. Yeah. Back at you. All right. Cheers. Well, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>